when we acquire subscribers, one of the biggest growth hacks that we've done is cross promote in other newsletters. So we'll say, we'll talk to another newsletter and say like, why don't you promote Morning Brew and we'll promote you. And we found that those subscribers coming from other newsletters are really high quality because they're newsletter people. They're already in the inbox. They're already, their habit is already created. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Media Voices. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. A couple of little admin bits to check off before we begin. The first is that we do want to say thank you so much to everybody who has contributed money to the Media Voices Survival Fund. Yeah. Uh, you can do that by going to voices.media slash support. We've seen a fantastic uptick in the number of people who are donating either as a one-off or monthly. And if you do want to join the Friends of Media Voices um, family, then please do contribute there. We're thinking about getting badges made. So I don't know if that loosens your purse strings a little bit. <laughs> Um, what a family to be part of, eh? I know, right? This week, I was lucky enough to catch up with Neil Framman, who is the managing editor at Morning Brew. Since 2017, he's been part of the team that's proved the viability of newsletters as a source of advertising revenue. And he was ahead of the curve when it comes to the importance of newsletters to a publisher's wider strategy. So we spoke about what's changed in the newsletter ecosystem during that time, what the rise of the individual journalist-led newsletter means for creators, and what new verticals he wants to launch newsletters in. Really great chat, and actually very relevant to some of the nibs that we're going to be talking about this week but before we get into the main story um, i've actually got a conversations episode to trial uh, so this wednesday we're releasing a new conversations episode with the lovely team at Afino. so ceo marcus carlson and ttg media's steve hines talked to me about the benefits of software systems consolidation um, why it's so important for things like data compliance and the environment and how publishers can help bring teams on board with the process as well so um, yeah, I think that's that's generally an issue that touches at everybody's hearts because everybody's got far too much stuff plugged in. So um, yeah, <laughs> I, I dare look <laughs> around my desk, honestly. But that sounds really interesting. Uh, both a moral and commercial imperative to actually doing yeah, that, right? Absolutely. Very nice. Speaking of morals and particularly moral failures, people, uh, Peter, why don't you take us through this first story? Oh, I don't even know where to begin with a story. <laughs> well, okay. Well, begin with where it came to wider attention, which is when the government got involved. That made me incandescent. Um, so our so-called culture secretary Nadine Doris, who I swear I'm not going to talk too much about her because it'll just make me incandescent again. But but, but just just to interject, this is uh, the Nadine Doris who said, um, "Can we get rid of algorithms to Microsoft?" Yes, right? Absolutely. Okay, cool. So well, that's just a base level of where her expertise lies. Yeah, it's the same one that says that we've had the internet now for ten years. That one. That one. That one. Uh, so she tweeted. We cannot allow technology to distort democracy and compromise our free and fair society. There's so much to unpack in that alone. <laughs> no, we can't. We don't have time. But anyway, in that tweet, she shared an article from the Daily Mail. Mel Plus, um, even. Oh, yeah. Jeez, someone paid for that. Yeah. Anyway, about how Google has been promoting news stories from left-leaning publishers rather than from right-leaning publishers. Okay. All right. Well, what's the proof? Because obviously you can't make a statement like that without significant amounts of proof. Yep. Well, the proof of this insidious bias is that a search for Boris Johnson um, from this, by the mail, sorry, but I should clarify the research was done by the Daily Mail, mm. 
in a search for Boris Johnson, the Guardian come up 38 times in search results and the Independent came up 14 times in search results. Mail Online only came up twice. Clear, clear anti-right wing bias. This is not a new argument that's been put forward, is Absolutely it? Absolutely not. It's straight out the orange man baby's playbook. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. But why is this not just a tantrum of the, of the likes we've seen before? Because it's bollocks. <laughs> it is, yeah. And it, and it's not just it's 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 not just bollocks because it's a male, and it's not just bollocks because it's Nadine Doris. It's founded on a fundamental misunderstanding of how search engines like Google work. Mm. Google I mean, also let's let's be clear. Here. Very few people actually understand how Google search engine works. Well, like it's if, deliberately if, if you if you crack SEO, yeah. you can go into companies for a lot of money and get it to work. But, yeah. but you can, yeah. But that's the thing. It's yeah, deliberately obfuscated. But there are some underlying trends around this. The first and foremost of which is that Google results are tailored to the individual. Yeah. I feel like there, there was something that came up in was it October, November last year. It was the Mail Online as well that had um, got across about this. And they were saying, oh, none of our stuff ever appears at like, the top of search results. And they'd searched for stuff specifically they'd written. And I would, I would just say, political views aside, the Mail Online, I think they're one of the top online publishers in the UK. Like Their traffic and their, their, their UK audience is huge. But their SEO is atrocious. Like The way Sign that they write headlines too. is to try and get as much info into the headline as possible. Like they, they, they don't follow a lot of best practice. And, and that's fine. That works for them. That works for their audience. But if you're then sort of looking at Google search results and saying, why are we not appearing? Mm. Yeah, guys, you need to <laughs> you need to hire SEO team. Well, so Press Gazette has done a, well, they've resurfaced a rebuttal because this, as you mentioned, this is not the first time that the, the Mail in particular has made this claim and we can speculate on why they've done it now again. But um, Press Gazette basically spoke to a bunch of SEO analysts who said, in fact, it's nothing to do with political bias, left or right. There's nobody sat at Google HQ who's going, that's a right-leaning article, deprioritize that. Um, it's all about what Google search is, um, what Google search considers to be an authoritative source. Now, there's endless ways that they can, endless permutations for what actually counts as that, where that is site architecture, like you said, SEO, um, a history of being cited, backlinks within articles. So, it effectively, what quite, the mail, quite often it, as well. It does, but this, so in part, that's why the mail can sort of get away with making this statement and having it retweeted because people don't necessarily understand it. We haven't seen the methodology for this. It's a ridiculous claim to make on the back of what presumably was like. Oh, but they did research. Well, they did research, did they? Yeah. Some guys sat in the mail offices, typed in Boris Johnson, and he and got no mail articles. This is like this is like Elon Musk's way of verifying Twitter bots by counting every hundredth follower. (laughs) Yeah. But Esther, you made a really, really good point there about Elon Musk because um, let me read a tweet to you here from uh, M. Nate Shyamalan. So no, it's not from him. Uh, it says, it's so funny to me that Elon Musk thinks Twitter is half bots because his replies are full of crypto scammers. No, dude, they just know your fans are the easiest marks on this entire website. It's This is all about confirmation bias. This is all about people wanting to believe that, like Nadine Doris wanting to believe that, oh, people can't be reading negative stuff about Boris Johnson. This must be a Google yeah. problem rather than a sort of, uh, just him being a, Boris Johnson being a complete fuck up problem. Like you mentioned, Peter, the, the danger here is that this is contributing to an ongoing undermining of trust yep. in not just the news ecosystem, but even how people find and source information now. It's it's completely, I mean, for one, on one hand, this is a complete abdication of responsibility from the part of Mail publishing this tripe without actually verifying it, showing methodology, anything like that, particularly when all the evidence runs counter to it. But the other side of it is they've done it with an agenda. And... Yep. 
it's it's only going to make everything that we've seen that's wrong with the news ecosystem at the moment. One of the things that's in this story is that the culture secretary vows to act. What mm. what does that even mean? It means bollocks all. She's going to text. She's going to go in. She's going to strip out all the algorithms. She's going to get under the engine of Google and just rip out the algorithms until it's just pure search. But it's just inflaming their numpties with their pitchforks. And, Does this uh, not just make the case that more and more that the people that are leading, yes, <laughs> you know, the culture secretary, the the education secretary, should be experts in their area, not career politicians? Yes, one hundred percent. The fact that she's been parachuted into that role, knowing nothing yeah. about tech, is just and I, I, no, I, I, I don't blame her for not knowing. It, it, it's not easy <laughs> to get your head around. And I if, sort if, of blame her for not knowing about <laughs> Channel Four. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's like that. But you know, it, generally, if, generally these things are not easy to understand. You know, we mm. we we take our knowledge and our background in that sense for granted sometimes. If Google wants to, well, if Google cares enough about fighting back against these accusations, they do need to be more transparent about how it works. <laughs> yes, they do. And actually, there's a there's a tech literacy issue here that there's mm. some fundamentals that should be explained. Like, how come if I search for something that I search for regularly, I end up in my own little uh, echo chamber? Yeah, that kind of stuff. You know, that kind of because that's one of the things. There's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant takedown in this by James O'Brien. Well, James O'Brien talking to LBC's tech guy, and it's just brilliant. You have to listen to it. Yeah, it's Will amazing. Guy is absolutely fantastic in that. It's amazing. But as he explains in that, one of the things that could have gone wrong with the male's research is just <laughs> that the guy, the terminal that the guy used to run the search, he yeah. reads the Guardian on that terminal, so it came up more with the Guardian <laughs> than it did with the male. That, it's, like, it's like when people complain about seeing dodgy ads and it's like, yeah, there's a, there's a surf based on your targeted interests. <laughs> oh, the, be- the, the, um, the, uh, the donkey porn guy. Yeah, it was the donkey porn <laughs> guy. Yeah. Oh, God. How did um, I miss the donkey porn guy? It wasn't Guido Fawkes, was it? It was Guido Fawkes, yeah. So uh, a Guido Fawkes oh, no, writer I do that, yeah, I do said, that, why is the Guardian showing donkey porn? <laughs> <laughs> and now on to our news in brief Sorry. and um, some sad news, uh, unfortunately, but it's still extremely insightful. So Anna Codriorado has called time on her freelancer-focused newsletter after five years. First and foremost, we need to acknowledge that running a solo newsletter for that long and managing to not only inform people, but make it worthwhile entertaining is worthy of celebration. Five years is phenomenal to have done that. But more importantly for us and our listeners, even in that kind of final farewell, she gets very candid about the reality of running a newsletter and struggling to find revenue. Um, She says that, you know, ultimately there are many reasons, but it just kind of wasn't worth continuing. It's a very bittersweet read, but true to form, Anna has shared some real insight there in the announcement of the closure. So um, if you want a bit of a, I don't know, short, sweet, bittersweet read, I would go and check that out if you have any interest in the newsletter economy. And then go and buy our book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Brian Morrissey, I met Brian in real life for the very first time this week. No, last week. How tall is he? Yeah, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> he's not as tall as I thought he would be, actually. Yeah. It's interesting. But he's a good looking guy. Anyway, <laughs> it was funny. There was like, you know, there was a few people because Brian, you know, Brian's a rock star in this, yeah. this little niche that we we're in. And I was so, I was with him a couple of times when people came up and said, Oh, you're, the, you're Brian Morrissey in the flesh, the Brian Morrissey. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was so cool. And he is such a humble guy. He's a lovely man. 
Anyway, in his newsletter, The Rebooting, uh, he takes a very timely look at physical events uh, and how they really still have a place in the media mix. Um, he listed the value events, he goes through a bunch of stuff, and also the challenges that they still need to overcome. I think one of the things that I took from that was he thinks the hybrid thing is going to be really difficult to pull off properly. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. I think that, that was interesting. My big takeaway from being in that event was just this serendipity that, you know, you stood next to someone that you go, oh my God, it's you. Or yeah. you meet someone for the first time in the coffee queue or, or you just end up at a presentation that you haven't checked the schedule and it's brilliant. So that serendipity I thought was amazing. Yeah, hard um, to do that when you're on Zoom. But the other thing that he was talking about, but Brian was talking about newsletter, is that this idea of informality will be a winner at future events. The way he put it was more humanity, and I think that's so, so true. Um, Esther, can you explain yours to me? Because I saw the headline and it made jack shit sense to me. <laughs> I'm not sure the headline's entirely fair on the rest of the article. Um, so <laughs> okay. my news in brief today is that uh, the B2B and Specialist UK publisher Haymarket if they sound familiar, that's because they bought the media briefing back in 2017, not British at all. And they've just bought the British Podcast Awards. Oh, it seems like there's another one they could have gone for, but whatever. That's <laughs> <one they're doing. laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I've not been brought up by them a second time. Um, <laughs> they have revealed plans to increase their investment in podcasts as they move away from print. Um, that, that to me, I read it's kind of two separate things. They are moving away from print and yeah. increasing their podcast output. Yeah. But, um, Definitely. it's sort of, and I, I don't know if this is the the way the the deputy MD um, Donna Murphy has sort of explained this, but uh, she told Press Gazette that um, basically po- podcasts are kind of being used to replace print magazines, and that they would to quite replicate the, replicate the way people would react to magazines. Um, yeah, she says there's going to three hundred percent annual increase in listeners, which is great. But to me, it was a really odd that framing because podcasts are, you know, they're a brilliant medium. If you get them right, they can be an excellent revenue stream, but they're not a replacement for a completely different type of product. Anyway. It's a good article, though, and it's very positive what Haymarket is doing. Yeah. No, I mean, the rising tide floats all boats. I mean, that, that yeah. is a fantastic start in terms of listens going. And I think maybe what she's saying is just that emotional connection that you know, people have a print, they have a podcast because it's quite a personal thing. So this week I spoke to Neil Frahman, who is Managing Editor at Morning Brew. He was happy to share insights about, among other things, the rise of the individual newsletter creator, the appeal of newsletters to advertisers, and whiskey. But to begin with, I asked him what Morning Brew's suite of newsletters encompasses in 2022. Yeah, so Morning Brew started with the daily newsletter, which is a digest of business news that's made, you know, funny and short for uh for young professionals who and college students who um, didn't really want to read the Wall Street Journal every day, uh, that model seemed to work really well. So we said, let's do a bunch more like it. Um, but in different domains, we launched Emerging Tech Brew as our first B2B vertical, which uh, we're, we're creating newsletters for hyper-specific audiences in certain professional domains. Um, so we've copied that model across marketing, retail, I really hope. Uh, I don't forget any. <laughs> They're going to kill me. Um, IT. Um, and uh, we're going to launch CFO Brew soon. And that'll be our 10th total publication so that we have a thriving B2B business. And then on the B2C side, the the consumer side, we have the Daily Brew. And then we have more lifestyle newsletters like... Um, 
Sidekick, which helps you, you know, level up your life and your career. And then we have Money Scoop, which is a personal finance newsletter mm. to help you become smarter about your finances, which really dovetail into the Daily Brew. So that is our current newsletter slate at the moment. That's fantastic. And that's that's incredibly diverse considering where you started from. One thing I wanted to ask is, you know, across both the B2C, B2B, and the, some of those lifestyle titles as well, how how important is tone of voice and actually having a recognizable, I suppose, author behind it? How much of that do you see as being uh, foundational to the success of a newsletter? I think it's super important, um, for especially for Morning Brew, the, the daily newsletter in the early days. Uh, we really focused so hard on creating this, this tone. You know, we're not in the daily newsletter, we're not doing so much original reporting. Mm. We are basically aggregating what's out there. So theoretically, if you're an enterprising person who wants to read about the news, you could find the information um, out there that you want to know. And we think our differentiating factor is the fact that you can read about it and then laugh at the same time um, and laugh along with us. So we've we worked really hard on crafting the tone. And I've actually for, for writers for the brew, I've not hired so much traditional journalists as comedians. Mm. Um, so our Slack channel is kind of like a, you know, SNL writer's room a bit <laughs> where, <laughs> you know, we definitely are, our core thing is getting the information across. That is the most important thing by far is like, here's the news you need to know. And we don't want the humor to distract from it. But we know that really our calling card is the fact that you know, you can get it in a short, witty uh, manner. So we really focus hard on that. And it's really important across all of our newsletters. Um, we It was interesting trying to extrapolate the tone when we were creating these new newsletters because I was there and we were like, oh, wow, we do this so well. Like, how's it going to go when we do emerging tech? And yeah. how are we going to make it make retail funny and all of that? And we <laughs> tried. It was interesting. I think people might take interesting lessons from this, but we tried to sort of poured over the exact voice of Morning Brew to the different ones. Um, and I think that didn't do so well. And we realized later that like each writer for these publications has their unique voice. Like maybe I'm into sports and they're more into pop culture or something. So they should really lean into the, you know, their, the, the stuff they're interested in and that will let their voice shine. Yeah. Um, but we want to create like a holistic sort of tone like an umbrella tone where it's like, we're empathetic. We're not condescending. We're not super cheesy. And then like under that umbrella, like feel free to, you know, to go crazy. Provided you have that kind of that very unique voice of your own that people can identify as right. being on the other end of the email. So right. you might make a sporting metaphor. I might make a stranger things metaphor, but the point is that somebody has that direct one-to-one relationship. Right. So we did a uh, sponsored episode not too long ago, and they were talking about kind of the rise of editorial newsletters and how integral kind of that, that wider brand um, reputation is. Would you say that Morning Brew is recognized now as being kind of one of the trailblazers for the editorial newsletter as a sort of a form? I guess. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's been weird because I joined, you know, five years ago when newsletters were not necessarily a thing. Like I said, I I told people I was a newsletter writer and they were like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? And now I'm like, I'm a newsletter writer. And yeah, they're like, just, whoa, actually, yeah. How do I get how do I get to be a newsletter writer? Um, yeah. So the growth has been has been crazy. And, you know, it's just been it's been fun to watch, you know, morning brew grow and the whole ecosystem grow. Uh, and I don't know, I guess from I'm not objective, obviously, but uh if you're a neutral observer looking at it, you could probably say that the rise of morning brew really legitimized the you know, the business model for newsletters. And now you see everyone from legacy publications like the New York Times 
rolling out, I don't know, more than 70 newsletters to individual creators, uh, launching newsletters as well based on the model. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people saying like the morning brew for X, which is kind of <laughs> a, a strange feeling. Um, I was going to say, it must be quite flattering. Yeah. It, so, it, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had, you know, the, I suppose the first question that we should really ask then is, to what extent has the newsletter landscape changed? We've, you've mentioned kind of there's, there's been an explosion in the number, but in terms of how people think about them, what they actually add to a publisher's strategy, what have you noticed since uh, since Morning Brew, well, since you joined Morning Brew, about how the newsletter landscape has changed? Yeah, I think people have just noticed it's a, a great uh, way to connect with readers, um, and you can achieve and publishers can achieve like really what they want to do. Uh, some newsletters are editorial based, like what we do. Some are used for distribution. Um, say on the Atlantic, and I have a lot of great uh, stories that I'm publishing on my site. I can create a newsletter that's basically just linking out to those to those uh, pieces. Mm. So. Um, you know, publishers are seeing really, really awesome things with it. And I think it's like a, a rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing for newsletters. People are already in their inbox reading an, a newsletter. And the fact that another one pops up right next to it, you know, is is just great for us all overall. Um, so I'm just super excited about the the growth of the ecosystem. That's really interesting. I haven't heard it uh, said like that before. The idea that, you know, once the the inbox is seen as a destination for this kind of stuff, people are going to be spending more time within the bounds of their email inbox. So like you said, it's just almost a, uh, it's, it's the creation of a new habit almost. Right. And what's interesting is we've seen when we acquire other, when we acquire subscribers, one of the biggest growth hacks that we've done is cross promote in other newsletters. So we'll say, we'll talk to another newsletter and say like, why don't you promote Morning Brew and we'll promote you. Um, with this little exchange. And we found that those subscribers coming from other newsletters are really high quality because they're newsletter people. They're already in the inbox. They're already, their habit is already created um, to read newsletters and, you know, get news from newsletters. Whereas before, maybe when we started in Morning Brew, they they didn't have that habit. So uh, those people are newsletter people and there's a, an increasing number of them and they're opening the brew as well as a bunch of other newsletters because of the growth of the entire industry. Yeah, they're, they're primed. They're ready to consume content in that form now. Um, and like you said, we've seen so many of the bigger publishers really put a lot of time and effort now into making sure that they have newsletters for mm -hmm. subsets of their audience, making sure that they have newsletters which inform, entertain. Um, what do you think about kind of the rise of the individual newsletter then and the, I suppose the growth of tools like Substack, Review, which really allow, which almost democratize it, make it sort of much more of a um, individual, uh, an individual's able to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. I think there was definitely, I think it was a bit of a pandemic blip kind of thing, as yep. we're seeing a lot of <laughs> uh, the pandemic winners kind of fall back to earth. And I expect, and <laughs> just doing this for five years, it's insane amount of work to put out a <laughs> newsletter every day. And I would never be able to do it without a team of other writers, of growth people, of editors, of tech people. Like it is just not possible. I think so. So, <laughs> um, without getting so burnt out and, you know, just mm. saying, screw this. So, um, I do think you'll see the level of individual newsletter creators kind of fall back down to earth and realize that, uh, you know, a, a support system is really needed. You might see some of these like writer collectives start forming, mm. um, but then you're basically looking back at a media company again with, with sales and all of that. So I, I do think the individual creator newsletter boom is here to stay. I think there will always be people with the grind 
set uh, that to put out a newsletter um, for their audience and have that have that direct connection. But I, I think it may uh, fall back just because the support system is is so needed. You, you mentioned there about kind of cross promotion. But how did Morning Brew go about initially scaling its audience? Where were you sort of advertising and how then has that evolved? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's evolved a lot in the early days was definitely that unscalable approach. Um, kind of like Facebook grew actually the the college campus, the college campus was huge. Um, Alex and Austin, our founders, uh, went to Michigan and started morning brew. Um, and they were going like classroom to classroom, handing out paper, you know, eight by 11 sign up sheets, getting people to write their emails on paper. So lo-fi compared to what it is now. (laughs) Oh yeah. And then they, um, you know, went to, they left sign up sheets around the, the dining hall and all of that sort of like really growth hacky stuff just to get the, you know, a few hundred subscribers, but that really moved the needle. Um, when I joined, we were still doing those like really scrappy tactics. One, one fun thing was, you know, the website Quora, the yeah, website, yeah, yeah. question and answer website, I would write the newsletter one day and then we'd post, we'd, we'd search Quora for any relevant questions that were asked and then post the story to the to answer that question and sometimes it didn't really match that's, up at all that's and then a little that's link hustling. at the bottom a little link at the bottom uh saying sign up for morning brew which is maybe violated their terms um, <laughs> so yeah and then we wake up the next day and be like oh a few hundred subscribers like that's that's super cool at the time um but yeah and one other thing i should mention is our referral program which has been super successful and we built that in-house um, a lot of people ask like, yeah, can I get your referral program? And I have to say like, sorry, gotta, gotta build it. <laughs> but now there's off the shelf options, but that, you know, we really did a good job of incentivizing people to share the brew through word of mouth, um, by incentivizing, by like giving them rewards, whether those mugs and the most, the most, um, effective one was like exclusive content. So mm. we gated this Sunday newsletter for people for three referrals. So that drove a ton of subscriptions. Um, we still have the referral program, but the tactics have definitely changed. We have acquired a lot of subscribers via social media ads. Obviously, we've done a lot of these cross promotions. One big thing that for us has been giveaways. We give mm. away a MacBook every now and again, and like people really like MacBooks apparently. So, <laughs> so uh, those have been super effective. And now we have you know a growth team that is constantly helping us grow our newsletter past like 4.2 million uh, people at this point. So. Mm. You know, I used to be super involved in the data day of growth, and now it's a freaking machine. So I totally understandable. I suppose that's what you were always aiming for. Was it to sort of become <laughs> yeah. its own self-perpetuating engine anyway? Just to take a step back there, what actually goes into deciding which new vertical to to launch a newsletter in, whether that be kind of the emerging tech brew? Is that just looking at existing subscribers and saying, oh, actually, we think that there is an app, there's an appetite, appetite, thinking there's an appetite here, or is it looking at the kind of the wider, I suppose, media ecosystem? So luckily I'm not uh, in charge of deciding this, <laughs> even though I've enough. been like uh, sport, you know, I've wanted sports brew for forever and I'm getting shut down. Um, but no, I think there's probably a, a number of factors that go in, whether it's, you know, the, you know, obviously like there's a market for it. The current media landscape for that particular topic is sort of not up to snuff. Um, we, I think uh, obviously a, a big part of it is whether there's an advertiser market for it, you know, um, whether there's a lot of potential sponsors because, you know, we're profitable and want to maintain profitability with every new product that we launch. So that is obviously a big consideration. Um, so, you know, I think we're, we're launching a crypto newsletter later. And so that sort of maybe is a good, good example of like the nexus of consumer trends, 
a lot of money. A lot of advertisers wanted to spend a lot of marketing. Um, and, you know, obviously that's like a big slice of our audience that has invested in crypto and is really keen on uh, the industry. Yeah, totally makes sense. And I, I totally understand your your frustration with not being able to launch Sports Brew. The number of products I've tried to get past my co-hosts and they just won't go for it. Absolutely gutting. There's a good reason for it. <laughs> so uh, I suppose, you know, we were talking there about the very lo-fi methods of actually launching newsletters back when Money Brew began. How much of that is replicable for, I suppose, a new and upcoming uh, newsletter-based business? And how much of it is, you know, a completely different landscape? I, I think it's replicable. Like we, if you follow the morning brew model of delivering, you know, value to readers in a very short format, you know, the new, the stuff they need to know, whether that's business news or stuff for their industry, or if it's a super weird, uh, you know, hobby, they have uh, golf, luxury watches, whatever it is. Like, I think it's a good model to follow. I think people are craving information uh, in a very short, funny way. Mm. Um, so I think if you're an enterprising newsletter writer or an enterprising media company that discovers a niche that you want to tackle, uh, you know, I would certainly do something very similar to Morning Brew in creating a newsletter and uh, you know doing it in a super fun, quick way uh, that people like to consume information now. So I, I, you know, I think it's a pretty good model to follow. And I've seen a bunch of newsletters crop up borrowing this model just in the past few weeks, few mm-hmm. months, and I expect a ton more to do it. Um, I, I certainly think the tactics might change a little bit. The, a lot of the things that fueled Morning Brew's growth in the early days, like our first mover advantage, I think we, you know, uh, the cost of acquiring sc- customers on social media was a lot less cheap than it is now. And now it seems a bit, a bit prohibitive. So your mm. growth tactics might change, but it's not to say it's going to be any harder. Like there are probably a, a bunch of other tools that I'm not even aware of now in 2022 that we didn't have available in 2017 that can help you grow your newsletter, whether it's TikTok or Patreon or whatever it is. Like there are definitely other ways to get discovered. Um, so you maybe you may can maybe you can borrow like the content playbook from Morning mm. Brew, but the growth playbook in the early days might be something that you want to rethink. And interestingly as well, we, I was talking to Twitter not so long ago and they were talk, they had an acknowledgement that you can't move audiences. Like you said, it's actually too right. much of a hassle gap even to get people across, which is why their acquisition of review, which really integrated newsletter signups into kind of the Twitter feed made so much sense for them. Do you think that that kind of, I suppose that, that partnership between different forms of media and allowing signups to newsletters directly from, I don't know, a page, that you read the newsletter content on is something that we're going to see more of in the near future. Um, potentially, yeah. uh, I don't know. I don't. Uh, I haven't looked into it too much, but I've I, I've seen the the effectiveness of a very simple landing page. Honestly, mm. that is what our bread and butter was. We had morningbrew.com, which was basically a sign up box and saying put your put your email here, and we optimized the crap out of it. So I think nothing will beat that right now. Um, and people got pissed at us because we didn't include any archives of the edition. We didn't include any web pages of our articles on the, on the homepage. It's evolved since, but in those Mm. early days when like our only drive was to get people to subscribe to morning brew, it was the most bare bones thing and it was super effective. So I'm not, I'm not sure anything's going to replace that right now. That's fair. And actually you brought something up there, which is this, this idea of archives, because I've seen a, a couple of places using it almost as a revenue place, saying, you know, you, if you want access to our back catalog, mm-hmm. sign up a little bit more. Like, so it's kind of that Patreon model of adding a little bit more. So to what extent then do you think there is still room to play with in terms of how their newsletters get monetized? 
I think the ad product is really good right now. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure people are coming up, coming out with new, uh, new models. I think one thing that I've seen is Packy McCormick does, he writes not boring, which are these deep dives into new tech topics. And he's done a super innovative thing where he has these long sponsored posts of these particular companies that he profiles. And that's sort of like a new thing that I haven't seen. Um, in the newsletter space. And we might see more of that where he's got a super direct relationship with his audience and a really tight relationship with his sponsors and people really trust his recommendations. So just like devoting a whole newsletter to a complete sponsor um, is something that I haven't seen. But um, in terms of the current monetization, you know, they, they have the, you, you have your Substack paid subscription model, which I think will work for some people if you're offering highly differentiated content. But I still think ads are exceptional way to, mm. to monetize a newsletter. Um, we've done it really well. Um, we have like native feeling ads where it seems like the morning brew writers are writing it because we have incredible copywriters on the other side of the house. And uh, it's super easy just to click on the email and go to somebody's website as opposed to a podcast ad where, you know, yeah. it's more of like a billboard, a more like out of home advertising where it's super hard to track. You don't know uh, how many people are going to your website from a particular ad spot or it's, or it's super difficult. Whereas like we can put a tracking link for an advertiser in a newsletter, put in new creative ways. So we're constantly tweaking the ad spot. Um, we're never satisfied with performance while it has been good. Um, so I'm just trying to think of new ways to, you know, mix up the newsletter uh, composition so that, mm. you know, the sponsors are very delineated for the our reader because that is their number one thing. They want to know what is a sponsorship or not. They're cool. definitely they're definitely going to click on it, but um, we have to figure out the best ways to kind of interweave the sponsorship with the editorial content. But it can really flourish there. I it's kind of like a podcast read um, mm. where the where the you know the host kind of takes a step away from the or a radio read. You know the the po- the host kind of steps away from the editorial content and says like, yay, this cool product. And I've actually seen that in certain newsletters um, that have emerged recently where the the host, the writer of the newsletter comes on and they're like, yo, be sure to check out our advertiser today. Like they're super cool. You know, it's like the most blatant thing you've ever seen. <laughs> but people are like, well, they fine. get it. Yeah. Um, that's fine as long as it's acknowledged. But I, you know, that's something that Morning Brew doesn't do. Like, hey, check out our <laughs> advertiser. Be sure to click on it. Um, and that might be seem a little skeezy, uh, but people are just owning it at this point. And, you know, they're just realizing that, you know, this is how we make money and we're just going to address it. And I'm going to treat my sponsors really well. So um, I'm going to get you in front of my audience. But no, I haven't seen something like this replicated across other media. I think it's one of the unique parts about email. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I don't think anybody who's listening is going to disagree with you on that. Um, I did want to get Ben Ura quickly about what do you think are some of the um, the most important things that go into not just growing a newsletter but ensuring that people stick around that they're kind of sticky. Is it that uh, is it regularity? Is it just making sure that it is there when people expect it? Is it that tone of voice? What are some of those big um, must haves? I think what you said, regularity, consistency is huge when you you should send a newsletter when you say you will so if you're mm. if you're a weekly newsletter send every single day on friday or whatever day you you choose if you're a daily newsletter make sure it shows up in people's inboxes every morning cuz people want reliability um so that is huge and i think you know the the more frequent you send a newsletter the faster it'll grow that's just a fact mm. so uh whenever we've added sends i started we were like monday through friday we added Saturday, we added Sunday. And just the fact that you send more newsletters 
more people read it, more people share, there's more touch points. So each time I think you send it, like your, your potential to grow only increases. So consistency is like, you know, maybe you're, (laughs) maybe you're not feeling it one day or anything, but like (laughs) get an email out, do something um, that reaches your audience. So they know that you're still alive. And then I think just like sticking to your mission statement and providing value every day, people will, will open the newsletter. It's been, you know, it's easy to get sidetracked a little bit. You're like, oh, well, I only write about, uh, sorry, I just keep going back to golf, but like my newsletter is <laughs> only about golf, but like, yeah. I really care about what's happening in the Supreme Court. So like, maybe I'll write about that for today. Like, I, that's not what people are expecting of you. So um, really stick to your mission. And at Morning Brew, our mission is to really uh, make <laughs> make sure that people who read it don't like look stupid when in their meeting when their boss talks about you know the crazy thing that happened yesterday, and they can be like, oh yeah, I like, totally know about all of that, and I'm actually can contribute to the conversation and and sound smart in front of my colleagues or friends. And mm-hmm. so that if if we just stick to that every day because that's our mission, then I think people will keep coming back because that is like a need to have in your life to need to know what's going on. Um, so that's what we, we, that's what we do. And I think that's one of the reasons people stick around. It's just the humor is a nice sprinkle, um, because it it helps people read and consume the information. But I think it's really just like being up to date in the news, knowing what's important is really just like what our value is and what we try to do every day. Uh, you mentioned that crypto newsletter before, but what is next for morning brew as a sort of wider, um, media company? Is it, you know, seeing which new newsletters you can launch is it heading out into merch is it you know building out other revenue opportunities what's sort of next along that that path yeah we're totally trying to be a comprehensive media company started with newsletters newsletters will always be our bread and butter we will launch more newsletters so expect more newsletters from the brew um but we are definitely becoming a more holistic media company we've launched a youtube channel again i'm gonna forget some of these and my colleagues are gonna kill me <laughs> but we have a youtube channel podcast um, various multimedia platforms that we've launched um and we've also dove in we have an education uh based uh unit that offers cohort based courses um that's our first non-ad product um or non-ad based uh product and then we have uh we're diving into the creator economy we feel like we're super bullish on the fact that people are really loyal to particular individuals uh we all you know we we do think that brands are important which is why like morning brew and it's not neil freeman um sends you an email and we think that that works, that, that is not, uh, extinct, but we do see the growth of the creator economy and we're not stupid. Like this is going to be a thing. Um, so we've, we've grown creators in house. We've brought some on to launch newsletters, to launch podcasts, to do videos. Um, and so we're super bullish on that. Um, and we're excited uh, Those their accounts have grown so much since they've come to morning brew a couple of them. So, um, that's something we're definitely leaning into and are, are excited about. Perfect. And something we ask all our guests as a very final question is, what was a piece of media you consumed recently? It could be a newsletter, it could be a TV show, could be a book, could be anything. Yeah, this is not going to be like super niche or unheard of, but I've just started uh, like getting into Better Call Saul. Oh my God, it's the best. So I've... I'm not like a TV guy. I like TV. I only watch like the best TV shows. I don't watch like, I'm just not somebody who plops in front of the TV at night. But like when I latch onto a TV show, I like really dive in. So basically my life right now consists of just writing newsletters and then like watching as much Better Call Saul as I can. 
Okay, so as I've been boring everyone rock solid with the news that I was in Portugal last week. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was at the FIP Congress in Kashkai, uh, which is a beautiful place. If you get the chance to go, go to Kashkai. But if you get a chance to go to the Congress, you should also do that. But while I was there, we took a chance to put together a special episode from Congress with some interviews. I have to say, I think it's a nice little encapsulation of what people were talking about. It was, it's, I think it's got a sunny feel like Portugal had. Stop rubbing it in. <laughs> you sort of hear the, you know, the seagulls croaking in the background and the trolleys <laughs> going past. Drinks uh, trolleys. And yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a lot of listening to us this week, right? But um, if you can squeeze us in once more on Wednesday, I've got our special conversations episode coming out with Afino, looking at how you can consolidate all of your vendor technology into one, at least one platform. Um, so yeah, that's really, really good. Um, and that will be dropping Wednesday at 7am. Fantastic. The value the value we deliver as a free podcast is just unreal. Uh, don't forget that in addition to all that audio, you can sign up to our daily newsletter. So go to voices.media to sign up for that. It contains the four most important stories we've found for you every day. If you do want to kick us a couple of quid, go to voices.media slash support. But until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and more, thank you very much and goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.